All right. Well, hello, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio, at Essence Wellness Chiropractic Center. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are first to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Secondly, uh, the hope is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science is partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts more interactive. Let's go ahead and get started with today's show. And today I am super excited to interview Dr. Greg Kochuk. Dr. Kotchuk's ultimate goal is to develop new strategies and technologies for the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of spinal disorders and back pain, most common of all musculoskeletal health problems. His research interests focus on defining the mechanisms that initiate and sustain spinal disorders so that clinically relevant strategies can be developed toward their prevention or resolution. A major component of his research involves developing new technologies to assess spinal structure and function, then using those technologies to evaluate various clinical interventions. Dr. Kochuk is clinically trained as a chiropractor from CMCC. His academic training began in molecular, micro, uh, microbial, and cellular biology at the University of Calgary, and then progressed to biomechanics and bioengineering also at the University of Calgary. He completed postdoctoral work at the State University of New York and the University of Calgary, and then joined the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary as a, an assistant professor with an additional clinical appointment in student health services. He was recruited by the University of Alberta in 2004 to join the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine as an assistant professor and the Canada Research Chair in Spinal Function. Dr. Kochuk is currently Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. And just recently, Dr. Kochuk was awarded the American Chiropractic Association George B. McClelland Researcher of the Year Award, which recognizes an individual for developing, refining, and or expanding the body of knowledge in chiropractic. So congratulations, Dr. Kochuk, and thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks, Dr. Smith. Uh, please, it's Greg, and uh, I'm very happy and excited to be here. Thanks for that uh, very kind introduction. Oh, you're most welcome. Well, Greg, um, let's start with how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place. Well, this goes back quite a ways now. This is uh, a story from long ago where I was a young guy, uh, very young, eight, nine years old, and, and had a terrible time with migraines. And uh, to make a long story short, my family was kind of at the end of, of their options and uh, knew nothing really about chiropractic until my dad's best friend, who he grew up with, um, had just graduated from CMCC, uh, was driving across the country from Toronto and uh, phoned ahead to see if he could stay with us for a while in Calgary. And uh, 
After a few days of, of seeing this uh, situation in the family, he offered his help, and uh, it, it really changed our lives. It changed mine, for sure, and that of my families, who really didn't know what to do with this, this kid with headaches and vomiting and, and uh, difficulties that uh, are related to that. So that that's what opened my eyes to chiropractic, and then it was always in the back of my mind with my education, and then as I became more interested in health uh, and health education, Throughout my uh, university years, that's when it really became a, a serious pursuit. Got it. After that, you ended up going to uh, CMCC in Toronto, and as I understand it, you graduated in 1990. Um, and then it sounds like shortly thereafter, you you started the uh, academic pursuits. Did you happen to practice chiropractic for a while? And if you did, what kind of practice did you have? You know, I practiced for, for almost 15 years, uh, started in so, solo practice, and then probably five or so years into it, uh, became more interested in some research that was going on at the University of Calgary with uh, friends and mentors Phil Conway and, and Walter Herzog, who, you're, who your listeners will know. And uh, that really sparked my excitement about research, but never really thought of it as a career, and then Different opportunities came up uh, to obtain this degree and such, and it, it just kind of snowballed. And by the end of the time where I became full-time research, I had practiced as solo, but also in a, a multidisciplinary clinic. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction, the Student Services Clinic at the University of Calgary. So I, I really treasure those times because I think it was those clinical days, weeks, and years that, that really informed the, the questions that I'm asking now as a scientist. Uh, it was those experiences that made me think, hmm, you know, why is this something like that? Or, or could we do better? And I think without that clinical uh, experience, uh, my research career would look very different. That's really fascinating. And uh, as I keep doing these interviews with other chiropractic researchers, I, I notice a similar um, scenario with uh, pretty much everyone that uh, they started in practice and they had some pretty awesome experiences, learned a lot of stuff, and that informs uh, how they go about doing their research. So that's really neat to, uh, to hear. What made you decide then to go back to school to pursue the master's in biomechanics and ultimately the PhD in bioengineering? You know, I, I don't think I would have done it if it wasn't for some uh, funding opportunities that had come up through organizations back in the day like FCER and Tony Rosner, who um, made some competitive funding available for people who, who wanted to go back and uh, to upgrade. And I thought naively, you know, I'll just do this as a part-time thing. And uh, it, it kind of started that way. And, 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 and I think it kind of ended up that way. But I got bit by it and fell in love with the idea of exploring these questions and being in a laboratory. And and, and that just led to then the, the PhD. And it just kept going. And, uh, yeah, I have to say it was uh, the chiropractic community and their willingness to help people within that community to get some extra scientific training that, that really made the difference for me. Well, that's really great to hear. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get some help from FCER along the way, too. It's sad to see them go. Um, hopefully we get uh, something that uh, comes in lieu of FCER at some point. Um, sure, we will. But um, 
Now, you have um, authored lots of publications, uh, as well as numerous book chapters. Your publications have been published in some of the best journals, such as Spine, Spine Journal, Manual Therapy, Journal of Biomechanics, JMPT, and, and many others. And with your unique background in biomechanics and bioengineering, what do you see as some of the uh, significant scientific questions regarding chiropractic uh, with, with that background? You know, the background has been an interesting one because uh, at first, when you're a student and when you're training, you know, a unique background doesn't necessarily uh, fit in very well with the educational streams that are established and well-known. And people will say it's really exciting that you have certain combinations of skills, but sometimes they don't fit into the, the typical uh, pathways that people go and obtain their advanced education. So at first it was a bit of a tough sell. You know, people thought it was really interesting to be a chiropractor and want to go back and, and go to grad school, but uh, they didn't quite know how that would work in a, say, program that was traditional bioengineering or medical science. Now, of course, it's a, it's a great uh, advantage. It's, it really helps me, um, I think, produce some innovative ideas. But uh, it was a struggle at first to to get someone who was willing to sort of take up the charge and, and help out a, a young person who was interested in these things. So now the ideas are there and they've always been there from the beginning. But uh, I think when people train, they, they have to go through a little bit of maybe doing some topics and other things that are, are a little more established to understand how the, the process of science and research and publication works. And then when you get that little bit of a foundation, it's exciting when you get a chance to to explore your own questions and, and to investigate some of the things that, that you've been interested in. But it doesn't necessarily start out that way. You've got to kind of work for the company a little bit at first to, to put it you know in a different light. But the I think those things now that inform my research and, and some of the big questions that we're hoping to answer really relate to some of the, the more recent publications we've had about you know, why is it that some people get better with, with any care and, and some people don't. And they seemingly are the same people, same gender, same age, same mechanism of injury. And, you know, one gets better and you see another patient in that exact same circumstance and you think, I know exactly what to do. But yet you do that and they don't seem to respond. And uh, that is a question that I think is the biggest one that I had coming from practice. It was very frustrating for me to try to be systematic and, uh, and, and follow process and try to identify exactly what was going on and, and maintain quality control, etc., and still not have the expected outcomes that you, were, that you would think based on just other people's responses, let alone the literature. So that's that's really now where we're heading. It is why is this? Um, I don't think anyone expects chiropractic care or physical therapy or manipulation or whatever subset of a profession or treatment you use. None of these things are expected to work in everybody. So why is that? And now I think we're just scratching the surface of that and. Uh, it's an exciting time. I think we're sort of hitting research 2.0 in terms of what we understand about 
manipulation and, and how it's used in practice. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, and I really like the way that uh, that you approached that, and uh, I really appreciate the uh, telling us about how you know it wasn't exactly easy at the beginning, and sounded like you kind of had to forge your own way, and you certainly have, and and we certainly appreciate it uh, as a profession benefiting from uh, from the expertise that you have and the research that you've produced, and so I'd like to get into some of that research now and talk about some of your articles over the years. And as I was preparing for the uh, talk here, um, I noticed several uh, themes that seemed to come together to me um, looking at your publications. So one of them had to do with um, spinal indentation, uh, which relate to forced displacement properties of the spine. Um, then uh, some neuromechanical studies, cavitation studies, uh, or what other people may is commonly known as joint cracking or joint popping, um, vertebral artery studies, and then there are a few other ones. Uh, one that just came out in, in a nature journal that we talked about, structural health modeling, uh, which I'd like to get to as well. So first, if we could start with the cavitation studies, uh, this is something people are really fascinated about, um, not only, uh, I think, chiropractors, but also just uh, people in the world, just uh, folks who don't necessarily know anything about uh, chiropractic or, or much about medicine in general. Um, so uh, with that in mind, uh, you've done some studies that have looked at what happens exactly when you pop or crack a joint in your back or your knuckles. And uh, it's very interesting stuff, uh, stuff that is uh, really, really unique, hasn't uh, been done before. Um, one of them involved looking at uh, accelerometry and uh, adjusting the spine and then having accelerometers placed on the spine. And it seems like the practitioner was pretty perceptive about um, where the cavitation was occurring. It seemed like they were pretty accurate. And then more recently, you did a study where you looked at the big knuckles of the hand metacarpophalangeal joints, uh, and you used MRI in real time to visualize this knuckle cracking event. Can you tell us what you found and um, what the heck is tribonucleation anyhow? <laughs> you know, that was a pretty special study. That That's probably a, a once-in-a-career study that a, a topic like that just, just takes off. And, you know, a lot of people come at it with it with you know it's a little bit frivolous you know how important could cracking knuckles be but i think this is the start of something that really helps us understand you know what is this phenomenon why is it associated with this thing that clinicians do that that sometimes gets people better and you know why is that and uh, most of the work in this area had really been done decades ago and not much had had been added to the topic since and we were very fortunate to be involved with a group of people who uh, were able to sort of take this and, and go with it a bit. We, we recognized that MRI hadn't been invented yet at, in the time when most of this work had been done. And uh, the work kind of fell off. Uh, there were some limitations based on the current status of fluoroscopy and other tools that were being used. And it kind of died away a bit. And then MRI came in, into... Uh, into availability, and I think people just forgot that uh, 
why don't we use MRI to look at this stuff? And when we realized that no one had done that after all this time, we thought, wow, this is a real opportunity. No one has yet witnessed what goes on inside the joint in a way that, you know, might be more meaningful than what you can kind of see with shadows and such and the, the techniques that were used previously. So what this study showed was exactly that, the, the first footage of what happens inside the joint uh, when you get one of these, these cracking events, as most people would know it. Some people, clinicians and others, know it as what's associated with uh, chiropractic care or, or other things. But uh, no one had really seen firsthand what was going on inside there. And, and I think that was the real novelty of the, the, the result. Uh, from the sounds of it, though, you know, most of the people who, who say, you know, I'm not sure if I should be doing this or if it, it's bothersome to my joints, I've heard that it might be harmful. Other investigators with other studies have really looked that over now, and I think it's fairly safe to say no one's developing arthritis from, from repetitively doing this with their knuckles or their joints. In fact, I think we've made the case that it may be uh, made the case in prior interviews, not with the paper, that it may be that everything has to be working very well within the joint to be able to have this happen. So we're going at this from the point of view that having a healthy joint means that it's a joint that this phenomenon can happen in. And maybe for joints that don't do this, that's the question. Not why do they crack, but why do some people with some joints not have this phenomenon? What does that tell us about the health of the joint? Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting to uh, maybe take a look at, uh, and I'm sure it sounds like you've already thought of it, but uh, to take people with issues, you know, conditions of their joint, and then uh, try to do the same, repeat the same experiment that you just did and see what happens. I wonder if you would still get that um, phenomenon uh, or if it would be, if it looks something different or just not not happen at all. Uh, that sounds really, really cool. The, yeah, it's some yeah. of the, sorry, go ahead, Dean. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was saying some of the originators of the work, um, they, they definitely have some ideas about how the geometry might come into play and pressures in the joint and other things. And now I think we're getting closer to having the tools to see if those ideas really pan out or not. Uh, we have a little more work to do to to improve on this MR technique. Uh, there's certainly things that are happening in the joint, maybe between the various image slices that we get, but uh, that that we don't witness right now because they're they may be happening too quickly. But uh, now I, I think we're on the threshold of an, a, a new age of studying this phenomenon because of of what we can do technically to to witness what's going on inside the joint. Got it. So when, when you get that pop sound, um, in the paper you referred to that as uh, the event was tribonucleation. Is that just kind of like opening a pop can and gases dissolving, or what, what is exactly uh, happening with that pop? We, it's funny because we probably all went through our training being told that this was cavitation, and, and cavitation is a pretty specific phenomenon where you have a gas bubble that exists and then for some reason it collapses and liberates uh, noise and, and, and water vapor or other things like that. But um, there was always a controversy in the literature that, you know, up until a little while ago, 
that said, you know, maybe, you know, is it these bubbles collapsing that makes the sound or is it the bubbles that are forming? And there were almost an equal number of papers in the literature that that proposed each of these different things. And, and that led to a lot of confusion. You know, we had um, a colleague, Jerome Fryer, approach us saying, you know, I think cavitation could be due to this or that. And that's how we got going on this question. We went back to the literature and said, well, what, what, what's the latest on this? And to our surprise, not much had been published since back in the early days. And there's this confusing mass of literature saying it could be bubble collapse. It could be bubble formation. So triple nucleation turns out to be a very well-known engineering phenomenon. It's just that we've never really heard about it so much in clinical training. And that's simply if you take sort of two wet, flat surfaces, you can imagine two plates of glass and there's a little bit of water between them. There's kind of that surface tension that makes it tough to pull those two pieces of glass apart. But if you overcome that surface tension and you do pull them apart, you'll get this phenomenon, tribonucleation, where suddenly gases rush in from the side and you you can get sounds as well. And within an enclosed environment, you'll actually create a bubble there from this phenomenon rather than there one being there that collapses. So it could be that there's still other things going on inside that joint that we're not seeing. But at least from the technique that we used with the limitations of that technique, it would appear that bubbles are forming at the same time that uh, the sound is being created, which is a little different than than maybe what most people have thought. And there's still a lot of work to do, but it does give us a little bit of pause to think, hmm, maybe this isn't completely what we thought it was. Yeah, very good. Uh, thank you for that great explanation. That, that was great with the visual. Um, next, let's talk about uh, some of the vertebral artery dissection studies you've done. Uh, your work in this area has been able to help identify the area of the vertebral artery most associated with compromise in those with a history of uh, cervical manipulation. And that turns out to be uh, the V3 segment, which uh, is the more I guess, tortuous area of the vertebral artery. And you've also assessed the uh, quality of reports on cervical artery dissection following manipulation. What were some of the uh, points that uh, that you think about when you think about the you're going through some of these studies and, and uh, what you think would be important to uh, to let chiropractors know about those studies. Well, those studies in particular, um, I think what they tell us is that no matter what the event is, you know, it doesn't have to be anything that's related to chiropractic or manipulation or the the cervical arteries. When something happens, it's really rare. It's very difficult to study. And and consequently, reports about those events sometimes are, are really hard to understand because if they don't happen regularly, people don't know the questions to ask or how to write down the information, and it can lead to a lot of confusion. And sometimes that confusion forms the basis of a collection of cases that then become a study or other things like that. So I think we know now, especially from adverse event research, that we really have the reverse problem, you know, where we hope in a randomized controlled trial to have a large number of patients to or subjects to see what's going on with a particular phenomenon that we're studying. We don't have that control in, in rare adverse events. And 
we have to come up with different methodologies to be able to study those because we just can't use the traditional RCT and enroll people and expect these rare things to happen. So I think that those particular papers gave us that understanding, something we probably knew, but uh, these papers helped formalize those thoughts. We also did another study related to this topic, um, a study that was an animal study where we were able to create lesions within the vertebral arteries of, of dogs and uh, showed that it was difficult, if not impossible, to aggravate those lesions with, with manipulation of the neck. So the, the lesions were created, we measured those, then we provided manipulation or adjustments to the neck and then measured them again. And uh, there was no statistical significance, uh, significant increase in the, the size or shape of those lesions. Now, I think that tells us that it's, it's really hard to damage the arteries from this kind of treatment. It's not impossible. That's not what this study says. But at least from the study that we did, it's very hard to see how regular treatment in a, in a regular healthy artery would be problematic. Great. Great. Thanks for explaining that. Now, you've done a number of studies that have uh, been uh, referred to as spinal indentation studies. That was a new term for me. I think I get the concept, and that is uh, you're looking at uh, things like, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, stiffness of the spine, how you part a force into the spine and you expect certain mechanical events to, to occur and you measure those. Um, in a recent study um, with... Uh, Dr. Fritz and colleagues, uh, it was suggested that the effectiveness of manipulation could relate to the mechanical impact on this spinal stiffness and then subsequently affect the neurophysiology. In particular, um, you had looked at the lumbar multifidus. Uh, and in that paper, you talked about global stiffness uh, seemed to be reduced following manipulation, but terminal stiffness was not. Can you tell us what, what that distinction is? What what you found exactly? Yeah, this, this goes back a ways to uh, those clinical days we were talking about earlier with the frustration of, you know, why is it that some people are getting better and some people aren't? And, you know, there's a general, I think, at the time, suspicion about the reporting of those experiences by patients because how could that be so different? Clearly, you know, these people are not telling a story that, that you know, makes sense. Either lots of people should be getting better or lots of people shouldn't be. How, how could you have this diversity of reporting after this apparently similar treatment? So we thought, you know, the only way that we're going to be able to get past this, you know, to get past the doubters who'd say, well, here we have a group that's saying, this really helped me. And a group that's saying, well, this didn't help me so much. You know, the, the doubters would say, well, you know, those people who are being helped, they're not being helped so much. They're, they're just really telling a clinician what they want to hear. They're, they're really nice people, and they don't want to say that it didn't really work. And, uh, you know, how do you overcome that? You know, you, how do, you've got the patient. You've got to take them at their word. But that wasn't happening. So we thought, you know, really... We have a gap in, in care, and that is we don't have too many measures where we can objectively 
measure something physical in the person and say, you know what, that changed as a result of care. We have lots of patient satisfaction and patient reported outcome measures about disability and pain and a number of things. But I think the people who were skeptics of this work really said, you know, it's great that people say these things, but where's the physical measurements? So that's really what began my quest and my PhD was to to find something that uh, you could measure that was responsive uh, in these people. And there were lots of measurements. You know, there's no shortage of measurements like range of motion or whatever have you. But the problem was, is that, you know, you would give people these treatments and some of the people who didn't get better, their range of motion improved. So how did that work? And, you know, some of the people who did get better, their range of motion didn't change at all. So we did have physical measurements, but they didn't really seem to be correlated with patient symptoms. Sort of what your listeners know to be the case with, with imaging. You know, what you see on the image isn't always correlated with symptoms. So we thought, well, what's our best shot? Uh, what's out there that could potentially be the thing that we could measure and that would describe what uh, people experience when they say they get better? And we thought that's probably stiffness. You know, if there's one thing that everyone who does some sort of physical um, interventions for the musculoskeletal system is they feel things, they touch joints, they push on stuff. Um, It's pretty hard to be a manual or physical medicine therapist clinician of any sort and not touch and feel and probe the, the tissues that you're interested in. So we wanted to try to capture that thinking that there's a tremendous history of, um, of use. It, it probably means that there's something of importance there. So we, we simply try to instrument that experience that when you poke into the back, uh, could we measure what it is that's happening there? And various people had tried stuff like that in the past. Uh, and we were hoping to build on that with some technical improvements. And it's taken a long time, but we finally have developed a measure that's very robust and uh, we've now used in clinical trials. And those trials have shown that in the people who do get better, who who report that, yes, uh, my, my disability has improved, my pain has improved, um, I am someone who got better. We know that there's physical measures that we can see change in these people compared to the people who say, you know what, that just didn't work for me. And in those people, these same measures do not change. So it seems to be we found a really important discovery in that we've identified uh, three, three particular biomechanical measures, stiffness is just one of them, that actually change and change fairly immediately after treatment in those people who say that it works for them. Whereas the people who doesn't work for these same three biomechanical measures remain static. They don't change whatsoever. Great. Now, can you tell us what the other two measures are? So the first one would be the stiffness, and then what were the other two that you were referring to? Yeah, the other two. Now, all of this work, I should point out, uh, was done in our lab but by a very talented PhD student, Arnold Wong, who is now in his first academic appointment at Hong Kong Polytech. And uh, we had the ideas, but Arnold really did all the work and drove the idea forward. And what the other measures are is uh, we have stiffness, and that's what the indentation process measures. 
So we poke into the back and see if it's kind of looser than it was before. The other measure is what you also talked about, a measurement of how well the paravertebral muscles, the multifidus muscles in the back are contracting. Um, In the people who report that they get better with care, they're able to suddenly contract their muscles better than they did prior to treatment. And the people who say, you know what, it didn't work for me, they don't have any change in that ability to contract those muscles at all. And then, so the third of those is a disc diffusion measure. We use some pretty fancy MRI techniques to show that diffusion into the lumbar discs actually improves uh, immediately after care uh, with these responders, but doesn't change to as great a magnitude or a greater level in the non-responders. So we have three things that these people see change very quickly after care is their spinal stiffness, their muscle activation or their muscle activity is measured by a, a thickness measure that we use with ultrasound and this disc diffusion measure from MRI. Wow, that is, uh, that's really cool. You can just see uh, your initial thoughts come full circle to actually finding unique measures, different measures, uh, how this stuff uh, seems to work. That's, uh, I love it. That's amazing. Um, yeah, you know, the you, one thing I, uh, sorry. No, go ahead. Cutting you off that. If I can say one thing about that study that I really want to make sure gets out there, and um, two things actually, is those particular findings about stiffness changing in just the responders. Uh, that's about the second or third study we've seen that in now. So we're, we're pretty confident that this is not a one-time study that, was a little unique, and then when we go to replicate it, we won't see that again. We, we've seen this on a number of occasions in a number of trials now, so it's, it seems fairly stable. The other thing is that I think this is a very unique opportunity in, in the history of a profession, let alone any kind of healthcare profession, where there's been a long-standing argument you know, and, and difference of opinion about whether or not chiropractic or manipulation has an effect And there's one side that says it does. And some of those people are people who've experienced it and provide that care. Whereas there's another side that said, you know, it didn't work for me and never has. And, uh, you know, we know those sides of the argument. Well, I think this work really helps create a situation where a fairly unique situation where you can say, you know, everyone was right. You know, the people who it worked for, it did. And the people who it didn't, it didn't. So the the people who support this profession or this type of treatment um, were entirely correct. And and the others who say, you know what, we're we're a little doubtful of this, they were right too. So this is a way, I think, to, I mean, who could have imagined this kind of thing that we could bring both sides of this question together and say, this is a win-win. Everyone was right. And now the trick is, let's move forward with that. I, I don't. I think we're going to approach the days where this is no longer an argument if it works or if it doesn't. Uh, we, of course, have to do this for chronic low back pain now and, and acute and chronic neck pain and all these types of things. I imagine we'll see the same sorts of results, different percentages of responders and non-responders. And uh, I think it's really going to open the door to talking to government policymakers insurance companies who've really wondered, you know, what, why, what's going on? How come this doesn't work in everybody? 
I, I think this study really will be important for, for moving the profession forward in that way. Oh, really good. I, I appreciate that further elaboration, and I think those points are, are very well taken. And certainly, uh, what we've all seen in practice and continue to see, and uh, I just hope that uh, we can find a, a way someday to identify these people accurately who are going to respond the best or perhaps with one technique versus another technique. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot to go on that, but it sounds like an amazing start. So that's awesome. Well, you, Love it. You know, that's a good point to bring up. And if you like, I, I, I'd like to talk about that for a little bit, if that's okay. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've seen that response now where people say, wow, you know, we're almost close to the stage where we could identify, you know, who's going to respond to our care ahead of time. And, and that really is a good thing because nobody is, you know, if you're a patient, Dean, if I'm a patient, no one wants to go through treatment, you know, that isn't effective in the end. We'd, we'd like to know at the start that it's going to work. So a lot of people say, you know, this is a great idea, but we're just going to put it on the shelf for now because what we really want is, you know, let's just take this a few steps further and figure out who's going to be the responder before we even, you know, see them step into the office. And I say, you know, that's that's nice. And it's an important consideration if the treatment itself is really expensive, is really invasive, or takes a long time, it, and, you know, all these other things that we, we talk about in, in public health issues like screening tests and such. But in this case, we've got something that's fairly quick to deliver. The response is fairly quick. It's very cost-effective compared to alternatives. And we know the result right away. So the argument now is you would have to develop a screening test or an ability to identify these responders that is faster, better, cheaper than simply a trial of care. The, the catch, though, here is that once that trial of care is done, and you know it would be a fairly short period of time for at least acute low back pain, then it's time to move on. It's time to say, you know what, for this particular condition that you have, manipulation or adjustments doesn't seem to be the thing. You're not the responder. And it would have been nice, but now we know that you're a non-responder and we can focus our attention to some alternatives that might work better for you as a non-responder. So I, I think there's a case to be made that there's a, a clinical pathway that we can develop that will use this information and really keep it patient-centered. You know, what's best for the patient? It's easy to do this small trial of care rather than waiting a few more years for a screening test, but then have that responsibility to say that when it isn't going that way, we move them on to other tools that we might have in the bag or to our colleagues in other professions. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that is a nice segue to, to the last paper that I wanted to talk about, and that's the one that just came out here in March uh, in the Nature Journal Scientific Reports, and that was on structural health monitoring. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this could be one of those types of assessment tools to be able to identify people that may be responders in the future. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a very definite possibility. You know, one of the main things driving our lab 
you know, there's really two things. It's developing these measures that help us objectify what our patients are telling us. And, and when we have a measurement, when we have a number, we can all make better decisions about what's happening, uh, our patients included. But the, the other thing is that um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're capturing the individual patient experience. And that's where I think the idea of having a technology is great. But we've really taken it a step forward to say that, you know, that technology just discovered that not everyone is having the same response. So it gives the, I think, the, the idea that you've know, probably heard the term personalized medicine or precision medicine or individualized healthcare. You know, the, the gone are the days where you rip off an exercise sheet or a, a general list of things to do for patients and expect everyone to, to do well with that. We really have to customize things. And that's where this creation of technology and the new discoveries that we're making come together is how do these new tests help us better get the, the right care to the right person at the right time? And this technology that you're talking about, uh, a newer one, it's actually not so new. We've been developing it for a long time. It's just taken a bit longer than our indentation stuff. As a, some of your listeners might know seismic testing, where someone puts a vibra a big explosion into the ground or the ocean, and the way the vibrations travel through the, the earth or the water tells you where there's oil, tells you where it is, how deep it is, how much. And we thought, you know, this is kind of uh, something that maybe would be useful for a human spine. It, it's a mechanical structure, and this is a type of testing that's used all the time to assess the integrity of mechanical things. Like, when the space shuttle comes back, you know, or a plane has a problem, you can't just go fly it around to see if there's a crack in, in the fuselage or the hull. Like you you want to make that determination on the ground if you can. So this kind of testing is used all the time in aeronautics, in testing stadiums and bridges. You pass vibrations through stuff and you see what comes back and it helps you find if there's problems. And we've been very fortunate that we found that that's the case in the spine as well. That if you pass vibrations through it, different pathologies have different fingerprints of the way these vibrations come back out through the system. The trick has been to, to take that and make it into a non-invasive, clinically friendly tool. And uh, this last study that you're referring about in scientific reports is one that we did with our colleagues in Denmark, Jan Hartvigsen and his team, where we accessed uh, the Danish twin registry, the, the oldest and largest twin registry in the world. And we were able to find groups of twins who were very, very similar in their back-related function and history. And other twins, all identical twins, where one of the twins had a problem with their back that the other didn't. And what we were able to show is when you pass these vibrations into these groups of twins, the twins who were very similar, you know, same job, same health history, their vibration profile looks identical. Whereas the twins where there's been one person who's had an accident or sometimes things crop up in spines, even though these are genetically identical twins, we have one with a hemangioma, the other with not, etc. In those discordant twins, the vibration signals were very, very different. So this was a very high-powered proof-of-concept trial using this twin approach that showed us that it's feasible to use this vibration diagnostics when it comes to assessing the spine. And now, now the hard work begins 
of trying to categorize what all these different fingerprints mean and what they look like. And maybe there's even undiscovered fingerprints that tell us about the integrity of the spine that we can't see from typical imaging uh, like we would in X-ray or, or MR, which really don't tell us about function. They just really show us uh, appearance. So that, that was the, the, ra- the latest focus of the scientific reports paper that, uh, that just, yeah, just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was a fascinating read. Uh, I'd encourage everybody to get a copy of that, however you can, and, and read through it. It's really good stuff. Um, so that's great. I, I really appreciate you being on the interview today. Uh, can you, would you offer any advice to um, practitioners or students who have uh, interest in pursuing research careers in chiropractic? Yeah, you know, there's so many more people now than when I started. There's no need to do this alone. Uh, and in fact, you know, even in the last five years, if there's no one around you, then there's so many ways to get connected to people who are interested in the same things you are, whether it's epidemiology or biomechanics or genetics or whatever it may be. You know, there's so many distant learning programs and virtual universities and um, grad schools that offer and accommodate distant kinds of situations because, you know, people's lives have changed. Uh, It's not so common anymore that people simply move to go to grad school at another place. People are are trying to to change that equation and and help people get to grad school in, in ways that may have not been possible before. So I would say find the people who are interested in what you're interested in uh, get them to be your mentors and uh, see where it leads from there. Great advice. Any concluding remarks? Oh, it's going to be an exciting time. I, I think you're going to see an explosion of research that relates to the profession. And uh, the challenge will be now to uh, for clinicians standing in front of this fire hose of information blasting at them to to make sense of it all. And we all have to work together to find the messages that uh, can be taken back to clinic to be the, the real impactful ones for our patients. And that we have to do together. It can't be the scientists telling the clinicians what to do. It can't be the clinicians saying, well, that's not important to me. And certainly we can't leave the patients out of the equation. So all of us have to get together and make sure that this good information that's coming out now gets used in a way that's really most beneficial to to our patients. Couldn't agree more. That's uh, that's one of our missions is to try to connect researchers with chiropractors in practice and practice, uh, merge the two. Uh, so thanks for for being a part of this. Um, the chiropractic science uh, we've been around for just over a year now, and we've uh, done several interviews and. We're excited to keep going, and the feedback has been fantastic. So if you're just coming on board listening to these podcasts, uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, we're at chiropracticscience.com. We're on iTunes. We're on many different podcasting channels. So check us out. Uh, give us some feedback, and uh, we certainly look forward to, to many more of these talks. But Dr. Greg, uh, thanks again. I really appreciate your insight. And I just appreciate you as a chiropractor and uh, a researcher and best wishes in future endeavors. 
Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure. Lots of fun, too. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing who else is coming on the show and, and listening to what they have to say. Thanks again. Great. Thanks, Dr. Greg. Bye-bye. Bye now.